Advent, which is Latin for arrival or coming, is the season in which we reflect and celebrate the miraculous birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Throughout this season, we light candles on the Advent wreath, with each candle representing a different aspect of the importance of Jesus' birth. Though we look back on the the first Advent, we also look forward to the second Advent, when Christ will come again, not as a child, but as the conquering King. Three weeks ago, we lit the candle of joy. We rejoice knowing that Jesus Christ came not just as an infant, but as our Savior. Two weeks ago, we lit the candle of fulfillment. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promised Redeemer in Genesis 3.15. Last week, we lit the candle of peace, remembering that Jesus came as the one who reconciles us to God. This week, we light the candle of light. The world was darkened by the effects of sin, and Christ came as the true light to reveal that which was hidden in darkness. In his life, he cast his light through teaching and demonstrating that he truly was the Son of God. In his death, he defeated the darkness once and for all by overcoming the grave and rising victorious, revealing to the world the living hope found in Christ. Jesus calls his children out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Our Old Testament reading is from the prophet Isaiah. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light up my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Psalm eighteen twenty-seven through 30 Our New Testament reading and our scripture reading for this morning, Simeon uh, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. Luke two twenty eight through 32. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your beloved son, Jesus Christ, that you sent him to pull us out of the darkness and bring us into your marvelous light, to graft us into your family and adopt us as sons and daughters. We are grateful for that this morning, and may we just exalt he who is worthy, that is Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. And we are in the Gospel according to Luke. Today we continue our series called The Canticle of Christmas. Canticle meaning song or hymn has been our subject matter for the past few weeks. We will end the actual series The Canticle of Christ coming Wednesday evening, Christmas Eve, at Philippians chapter 2. But so far we have been in the Gospel according to Luke, chapters 1 and 2. We find four songs. First one was Mary called the Magnificat, a beautiful song filled with joy and rejoicing coming from the lips of Mary, Jesus' mom. Later on in that chapter, we looked at the, the, uh, the canticle of Zechariah, the dad of John the Baptist, called the Benedictus. And he, and, he, and he pointed to the reality of Christ being the fulfillment of the Davidic and the Abrahamic covenant. The third canticle last week, Pastor Ricky just did a great job preaching on the canticles of angels, glorious in excelsior Deo, the glory to God. 
And, and, and the angels sang a song of peace, recognizing that Jesus' birth is the birth of the Prince of Peace. Today we're looking at the song of Simeon, chapter 2 of Luke, a song called the Nunc Dimittis. Again, like the rest of the songs, these Latin terms are taken from the first words of these songs. And Simeon sings this song, and he begins with, Now you may dismiss, now depart your servant. Nunc Dimittis. Let me see if I have the, uh, the, yes we do, Song of Simeon. So open your Bibles, Luke chapter 2, Bible's in the back if you don't have one. What I'd like to do this morning is, is really begin at verse 21. I want to see the context of this passage and something that I believe Luke is trying to show us, to teach us this morning, comes from the, the, the context, and, and if we don't look carefully, we might miss it. And I don't want to miss it this morning. I want to look at this. So we're going to start at verse 21, kind of a wide lens view of this passage, and then we'll get into the song itself. So if you're taking notes, we're going to follow a simple outline. The outline will look like this. The witness, the word, and the wonder. Okay? The witness, the word, and the wonder. Luke chapter 2. Now, we know... From our study that Luke is a physician. We saw that in the book of Acts. We saw Paul's words about Paul uh, talking about Luke, his beloved physician. We also know that he's a historian. The gospel account that he writes for us, he tells us in chapter 1 that he did this through a thorough investigation of facts and and talking and sitting down and and listening to eyewitnesses. And, and, And now Luke is telling us something very important about the witness of those who are witnessing this very birth of Jesus. In other words, the people that Luke is talking to and the people that are are sharing this story, this Christmas narrative, is something that Luke wants to point out and point us to. And 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 as I said, I don't want to miss it. Now, we know a lot about who Jesus is up to this point anyway. I mean, we know when the angel showed up to, to Mary, the angel told Mary that this child of yours will be great and he will be called the son of the most high God. We know the shepherds and other people have shared about who this Jesus is and this testimony about the birth of Christ. But there are things here that I don't want to miss. And the first thing I want us to see in our, in, in the scriptures this morning is that all those involved in this Christmas narrative, in this witnessing, this testifying of Jesus, all those involved in this story can be trusted. And that's what Luke wants to point out. They can be trusted that their witness and what they're saying and their account of what has happened can is trustworthy because they're trustworthy people. Here's what I mean. Turn to Luke 1, 6. This is what it says about Zechariah and Elizabeth. It says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commands and statutes of the law. Okay, so here's Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, Elizabeth, the mom of John the Baptist, and the scriptures tell us they were righteous before God. They were, they were blameless in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. Matthew goes on to say in chapter 1, verse 19, that Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, was a just man, a righteous man, a, a good man. Mary, we saw a couple of weeks ago, was a woman of great faith. When the, when the news came to her by the Gabriel, it said, you're, you know, you're, you're not married, you don't have a husband, you have not consummated that, that, that marriage, he was only betrothed to Joseph, you're going to be pregnant, you're going to be, you're going to have a baby. And that was a problem. 
That was a big problem for her. She's a teenage girl. But what we see her is we see her humbling herself. We see her accepting the word of the Lord. We see her forsaking her reputation, forsaking her comfort and security to follow the commands of, of God. Do as you want with me, she says. Luke is making it clear in the gospel of one, chapter 1 and 2 and the rest of the story that we see about Jesus, about who Jesus was, that these people were trustworthy folks. Now, when Luke says that they were righteous, it doesn't mean they were perfect. Okay? When the Bible calls people righteous other than Jesus, it does not mean they were perfect. God said back in Genesis that the whole world was corrupted and the whole world was sinful and corrupt. Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So every person has sinned and fallen short other than Jesus. To be righteous in the scripture, when the Bible talks about Noah being righteous, we see this with, uh, with the people given this story. What they're saying is that righteousness is that they, they have a heart after God. They, they, they understand the will of God. They're, they're conforming to it. They're regularly practicing the things of God. And Luke tells us over and over in this narrative of these people who are practicing, have a heart after God, listening to God, and following the will of God. Look down at our text, chapter 2, verse 25. It says, Simeon was righteous and devout, a follower of God, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So not only is he righteous, not only is he walking in the will of God, not only is he devoted to God, but the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God was upon him. That's important. Go further down in our text. Actually, go past it and look at look what he says about Anna, the prophetess, down in verse 20, excuse me, 36. It said there was a woman, her name was Anna. She was a prophetess. She's probably in her low 100s. She's an elderly woman. It says she didn't depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and praying night and day. Coming up that very hour, she began to praise God to speak to him, to all those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Why is all this important? Why does Luke go to almost extreme to point out that the testimony, that the witness of Jesus' birth, the narrative, the Christmas story, is being told by people who are trustworthy. Not only were they right before God and devout to God, but other people saw it as well. And he wants to establish that these witnesses, are their character, their conduct, is essential in establishing their testimony, and it cannot be denunciated in any way by their lives and, and, and their love for God. Luke says it over and over again. They were righteous. They were blameless. The Spirit of God was on them. They were, they were devoted to God. They were followers of God. They can be trusted. That's number one. Number two, very important. And we, again, we've got we to gotta step back and look at this. Notice in chapter 2, verse 21, 22, 23, 24, 27, and 39, Luke tells us over and over again that Mary and Joseph were following the law of the Lord. They were, they, were, they were obeying the Mosaic law over and over again. Even if you go down to verse 41 and 42 of chapter 2, it says the parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. That was required. And when he was 12 years old, Jesus, they went according to the custom. So we see in, in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2 over and over that Mary and Joseph were following the will of the Lord. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, and the end of the eight days after Jesus was born, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. 
Okay? So just like John the Baptist, it was a custom in that day. It was the eighth day, circumcision, and it was the naming of the child. Jesus, God saves, Yahweh saves, is given the name, just like the angel. And we find Mary and Joseph doing what the law required. Circumcision was a seal and sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And every believing Jew, or every Jew in that, in that time, even today, follow through with the circumcision of a child. And we see really early on, from the very earliest days of Jesus, that he, even as a child, was following the Mosaic law. Look at verse 22 of our text. It says, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens, first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. You see that? So what we, what we find is Mary and Joseph headed to the temple. They got Jesus with them. And there's two things going on here. There, there's the purification of the mother. And then there is the presentation of the child. Purification of the mother and presentation of the child. Now the purification ceremony in the law of the Lord can be found in Leviticus 12. It says that when a woman has a child, a male child, she would be considered unclean for 40 days, right? So she was unclean. And, and so after 40 days, she would go to the temple with a sacrifice to, to, to purify herself, to be able to um, be clean, as we say, a ceremonial clean, okay? Her need for this purification was due to the fact that she had contacted blood, there was a blood contact, and if you come in contact with blood, you were unclean. This had nothing to do with her, her personal moral holiness, but her ritual purification, right? So it's not teaching that, you know what, if you, if you have a baby or it's saying something negative against, you know, sexual intimacy or having a child, somehow that makes you a sinner. That's not what it's saying. What, 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 the, what, what the Lord was pointing to is that coming in contact with blood made you unclean, and therefore you needed to go to the temple and be clean, Okay? So it wasn't about just her, although all sin makes us unclean, but Mary's going out of purification. The law said that if there was any discharge, any blood, you were, you were temporarily unfit. You were unwhole for a season until you went to the temple and you were purified. And then you can return back to regular duty at home. You can return to the, to the temple worship of God. And, and the point of all this that God was trying to teach his people Israel, the principle is that the unclean, that which is unclean must never come into contact with the holy. What is unclean can't come in contact with what is holy. And that was, that was the point. So she's there at the temple presenting her offering for a cleansing. The second thing we see is Jesus is, is being presented. And, and he's being consecrated unto the Lord because it's what's called the redeeming of the firstborn. What God says over and over in the Old Testament is the firstborn born child belongs to God. Exodus 22. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses the firstborn of your sons. You shall be given to me. They belong to me. God says over and over in the Old Testament, life of the firstborn belongs to him and therefore in order to receive that child back, there must be a substitute. You must redeem your firstborn with a substitute, with a sacrifice. Numbers 18. Let me read this to you too. Everything that opens the womb of the flesh, whether man or beast, 
which they offer to the Lord shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem. And the redemption price at a month old, you shall redeem them, is five shekels of silver. This in the law of the Lord. So five shekels of silver, silver is the ransom price. And what God was doing to the, to, to the, showing the Jewish people and, and through this, through this sacrifice is that every family owes to God that the firstborn is forfeited, forfeited unless it is redeemed because there is a payment that is due that every family owes a debt because of their sin. And therefore, the firstborn should be redeemed because it belongs to the Lord. Now, if you remember in Genesis, we studied Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is told by God to take his son, his firstborn son, and to bring him up to the mountain. Remember that? It's to sacrifice Isaac. Now, if God had come to Abraham and said, take your daughter, take your wife, he would have thought he was hallucinating. But he understood that, the ancients understood that, that the firstborn belonged to God and had to be redeemed because of the debt that was owed. They understood that. That's why Abraham went. Okay, that's why Abraham went. He understood the concept. And, and you know, we, we don't really totally understand that. I don't think we ever really could. But all these things that we see in Luke chapter 2, the circumcision, the purification, the redemption of the firstborn are all symbolic and they're all testimonies to the reality of the sinfulness of man. Blood sacrifice were needed. We did a whole series on the atonement. I would encourage you to go online and read, uh, 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 download that and you hear our series on the atonement because when sin is reality, you see that, that that sacrifice should have been you. And you see the blood and you see the, the horrific horror that, that this causes as you sacrifice the animal, you cut the throat. It's a, it, it just shows us the ugliness of our sin. We don't have that today. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons why we take sin so lightly. I don't know. But when you did that, you said, that should be me. And that offering becomes a substitute in your place. You deserve to die. And then in the Old Testament, over and over again, these sacrifices, blood pouring from the temple, showing how gross and grotesque your sin, my sin, is. It's shocking, and it should be. People are sinful. We're separated from God until the sacrifice was given, and then you can have access to God, and that pointed to Jesus. That pointed to the Messiah. The reason, listen, the reason these sacrifices were done all the time, continually in Israel, was there was never a perfect, satisfactory substitute in the Old Testament. So every year, every day, sacrifices are being done. Hebrews 3.10 tells us that the sacrifices are there as a reminder of sin every year. It is impossible, the scripture says, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The Old Testament practice of sacrificial atonement was declared by God to be insufficient for the remission of sins. But why? Why? So so you have Joseph obeying the law. You have Joseph and Mary coming for purification. You have Joseph and Mary presenting Jesus. What is Luke getting at? Why do we have all this in the first two chapters? By showing the reality of God's Son, fulfilling the law of the Lord perfectly from birth, Luke wants to show us something essential, something critical, something crucial about who Jesus is and how his birth, 
His death, his resurrection can save us. Remember, Jesus is without sin, so they were not given sin offerings on the, on the place of Jesus. The reason the sacrifices were not sufficient in the Old Testament is because the lack of identity between the offering and the one who's doing the offering, the offerer. So why is Luke so careful about this law? Because the one who was circumcised, the one who opened the womb of Mary, the one who's redeemed for five shekels of silver will be the one who is able to redeem us from sin, death, and hell. They paid five shekels to redeem the Redeemer who would one day redeem us from sin, death, and hell. The witness that Luke is trying to tell us, the testimony given in this narrative, the key to identifying who Jesus is and how he came to save is his perfect obedience to the law and his identity with those who are under the law, those who are bound by the law. And we see that early in in the first two chapters so that his perfect obedience becomes the element, the necessary element to pay the price for our sins. Not his sin, our sin. So where do you find that? Listen, Romans 8, listen what it says. For what the law was powerless to do to save, to free us from the power and penalty of sin, what the law was powerless to do in all that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore he had to be made like his brother, that's Jesus, in every respect so that he might become a merciful and high priest in the service of God to make atonement for the sins of his people. Do you see what Luke is trying to show us? Jesus from early fulfilled the Mosaic law. He lived a life we could never live. He died a death we should have died so that he can become the one who fulfilled the law and can die for those who break the law. That's what he's saying. Galatians 4. When the fullness of time come, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, he became human. The incarnation. Born under the law, he fulfilled the law. He was bound by the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Folks, look at that witness. Look at the witness that Luke is saying. Perfect fulfillment, identifying with the offering, dying at the end of the book of Luke. I want you to see that. Number two, the word. Look at verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death, before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit in the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. See this. Elderly man Simeon, devout father of God, 
patiently waiting and waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation is this inauguration of this messianic age, the coming of the kingdom, the redemption of God's people. He longs for this deliverance like Zechariah did in chapter 1. And Mary calls him what? The, the, the mighty one who scatters the proud. Zechariah, back in chapter 1, calls Jesus the horn of salvation, the fulfillment of David's kingdom, who will sit on the throne forever and ever. The angels sing and say, glory, glory upon glory, preaching peace to those whom he saves. To Simeon, look what he says. He's the consolation. He's the comforter. He's the Lord's Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed king. And one of the traditional traditional prayers of the Jewish people was, may I see the consolation, the comfort of Israel. The prayer was answered. The prayer was answered for Simeon, who probably prayed that prayer hundreds, if not thousands of times his whole life. In the words of Isaiah, again, chapter 40, comfort, comfort my people, says God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her welfare is ended and that her sin is pardoned. Isaiah 66, as a mother comforts her child, so God says, I will comfort you and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. So although Simeon hears a word from the Lord, you you will not die, you, you will remain alive, you will see the Lord's Christ, you will see the consolation of Israel. He gets that word from the Lord. But let me tell you something. The Lord's Christ, the Messiah, the deliverer, the consolation was not a new word is written all throughout Scripture for the ages to know and to trust and to wait upon. It wasn't new. The Scripture spoke about it. So he received the Word, but it was submission to the Word, the Word of God, that the Messiah would save Israel. They longed for it for centuries. And here's Simeon, who knew the promises in Scripture, waiting for the fulfillment. He was promised you will see the fulfillment of all the Old Testament Scripture and he gets to see it. Now, we don't know how long he was waiting. I I, kind of sense reading it that it was quite a while. But can you imagine with me, just imagine with me what it must have been like for this man with the joyous anticipation, trusting in the promises of God, trusting in the Scripture, trusting in the word he received, going to the temple day after day going, I wonder if he's him. Is that him? That's a nice couple coming here. Let me wait. Waiting, waiting, could it be this one? And then one day, one great day, he's moved by the Holy Spirit into the temple court and in comes Joseph and Mary to bring him to the temple, to, to do all what the law has required. And, and, and he takes baby Jesus in his arms. Can you imagine the sights? As he waited and waited. Last week we went to Florida, as many of you know, to visit our grandson. And Sunday I got to hold him and sing in church. For the first time and pray over him. He'll smile from ear to ear. I thought my face was going to fall off, right? You can't imagine the Simeon, the promise since Adam, the promise since Abraham, the promise since David, the ones the prophets spoke about, Jeremiah and Daniel and Isaiah. And he looked at Jesus. I don't know if he looked away, he just kept looking. You know, one of these, like, he's here. I mean, I don't know, how how do you think that happened? He walked over to Mary and Joseph. He's like, "Uh, can I I see your kid for a minute? They're like, this is God. I just got entrusted with God and you want my baby. Like, you know, yeah, like, no, I'm sorry. You know what I mean? Like, no, they they give him, and, and, and he's holding this precious promise 
the Redeemer. Mind-blowing. But, but isn't that the picture of our salvation? Isn't that the picture of the gospel? Looking in faith to God to do what God promised to do. Clinging to Jesus as the only provision of our salvation. Holding tightly to the one promised to save us, to save Israel. So let me ask you, what are you waiting for? What is it that you need in order to say with Simeon, I can leave in peace. I could die in peace. Let me depart in peace. I have seen God's salvation. That's what Simeon said. What gives your heart rest? What gives your heart rest? Listen, anyone who has seen Jesus with the eyes of faith is ready to die. Young, old, we're ready. Anyone who has not seen him, anyone who does not have faith, whether young or old, death is tragic. Death is eternal separation in hell. Away from love of God, the light of God. Simeon knew the salvation that God promised. Simeon held that promised one and recognized God was doing what he said he would do. And he holds his baby, verse 29. Lord, he says, sovereign Lord, now you're letting your servant peace depart in peace according to your word. Now if you have an NIV, the word now you are letting is in the middle of the sentence. In the Greek, it's emphatic. It's the first word. Now! It's now! The kingdom has come. The, the, the person, the Messiah has come. Now! You may dismiss me in peace. It's a medical way of saying, you know, grant me death. I'm ready to go. So with this baby in his arms basking in the presence of God, being led and being full of God's Spirit, Simeon is experiencing this, this profound joy, this profound peace, and he's ready to leave the earth. Dismiss, he says. Dismiss is a military term. It was for someone who was watching night, all night, at a guard post. And when the sun had come up, he says, I'm ready to go and for his next relief. And he would, he would then get relieved and be able to go sleep in the barracks and get some rest. And that's exactly, exactly the picture of Simeon. I can go into my eternal rest. You fulfilled your promise to me. I have seen the Messiah, the Lord's Christ. I'm ready to go. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, my eyes have seen a part of what you're doing. My eyes have seen a piece of your salvation. No, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Right? Because when you have Christ, who is the gospel, he is totally, totally sufficient to save. He's totally sufficient to forgive, to reconcile us to God. Jesus is all we need. And that's what Luke is saying. Right? That's what Luke is saying. That our soul finds rest in him and him alone. We're ready to die. Look at verse 31. The offer is not just for the Jews, it's for everyone. That you have prepared in the presence of the people. He says, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. In this baby, Simeon sees the fulfillment, the hopes of the Jewish people. For centuries, they waited he calls Jesus the glory of Israel. Takes him back to, to the days of Abraham when, he, when God said, I'll make your name great. Kings will come from you. You will be a great nation and, and through you all the nations will be blessed. And then prophet 
and, and excuse me, his son, and Isaac and Jacob, and then the prophets. And, and then uh, Isaiah says he'll be Emmanuel, God with us. Generations upon generations repeated these stories. Fathers to their sons, mothers to their daughters, families to families. Little Jewish boys being raised, waiting and praying for the coming of the Messiah, the glory of Israel. That word glory is very important. To the Jewish people, they understood the glory, the Shekinah, the Panim, the face of God, the presence of God. He had shown it to Moses. He had shown it in the temple. He had come in the tabernacle, the glory of God. The glory is the the saving, leading, guiding power and presence of God. And Simeon is saying the fullness, the, 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 the personification of that glory is Jesus. And he said, but it's not just for them, it's for the it's life for the Israelites. Not just for the Israelites, it's for the, for the Gentiles, it's for the world. That the light would come into the world, the light of the revelation of God. Every nation, every tribe, every kindred, every tongue. Now that may shock some people there in the temple that he had come to save everyone, not just the Jews, but it shouldn't have been. Isaiah 49 talks about, I will make you a light, he tells the Jewish people, for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That text in Isaiah 49.6 about how the Gentiles will see the light is the same text that Paul used in Acts 13. If you remember, we studied that. He was in, he was in a, a, a synagogue preaching to the gospel to, to the Jews. And some of them received it and some of them rejected it. And Paul turned around and was like, you know what? I've come to the Jew first, but I'm going to the Gentile. And he says to them, it is, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up a tribe and to bring back the preserve of Israel, I will make you a light for the nations. In other words, you go and you preach the gospel to everyone. And some people got really angry at Paul. But you know what it says? It says that after Paul quoted that verse to the, to the gathering, both the Jew and the Gentiles, it says when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord as many as were pointed unto eternal life. It's not just for them. He's the savior of the world. Simeon's words just totally uproot the narrow-minded nationalism that Jesus came to save the rich and the poor, the young and the old, the Jew and the Gentile, the American and the Iranians. Jesus is the Savior for those who trust him. There is no other name. There is no other way. There is no other opportunity for us to be right with God except through Jesus Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection and in Revelations, we see this whole gathering of, of all nations, tongues, and tribes worshiping Jesus as God. And finally, look at the wonder. His father and his mother marveled. Thumazo uh, uh, wondered and were astonished at what was being said. Some commentators, I, when I was reading this week, they're like, why would Joseph and Mary wonder? Why would they marvel? Why would there be this sense of, of wondering and kind of marveling at what Simeon said? They're like, Gabriel told them already who Jesus was. Even the shepherds came and told them who Jesus This was nothing new to them. And I'm reading it going, they must not have any kids. Like, you know, you, know, you still wonder, right? I mean, can you imagine just for a moment, you're, you're in a temple and like, you got God's son in your hands? Like your head's been spinning since Gabriel left, you know, nine months ago. Like you're like, this is really happening? And, and, and I don't care if someone told you the same thing every single day, you'd be wondering. You'd be like, 
I can't believe this. Like, really? I mean, that would just make sense to me. And there is, there is this baby in your hands. He's the son of God. He's, he's the fulfillment. And, and, and you're like, and Simeon comes and says, listen, let me prophesy over him. This is who he is. You're not going to go, I already knew that, man. Tell me something I know already. You know what I mean? Like, you're not going to be like, oh, yeah, I know. I've already been told. The shepherds told me. I know the Gabriel showed up. You're going to be like, I know. Are you kidding me? I, me? Like, I, I hope I don't ruin this thing. You know what I mean? That's what I would say. <laughs> like, please don't keep reminding me. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm wiping his nose as much as I can. Like, I, you know, I don't know. You know, it would, be, it would be scary. You know what I mean? That's what I, for me anyway. So you have these two teenage kids. He's not very well known. And they got this redemption in their hands, this promise of, of Abraham and David. And their, their, their minds probably can't even, you know, understand everything. I mean, we talk about it, but can you imagine it being you? And then Simon prophesies, verse 34. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, verse 35, even a sword will pierce through your own soul so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You know, this is really the first negative note we see in the narrative of the birth of Christ. From Luke. Simeon is saying this boy is going to grow up to be a man who is a center of extraordinary controversy, conflict, division, and strife. I, I, I could only imagine how important that must have been for Mary and how much Mary must have been thinking about this as she was raising this boy, as this young man goes out into ministry and she sees all the hatred, rejection, Strife, controversy, division, and hatred that was caused by his ministry. How she must have thought back on during that Passion Week, I was told about this. Watching her son on the cross, I was told about this. He will bring the vision. He's the fork in the road. He will, he will, he will turn us inside out. Even a sword will pierce her own soul. Simon saying, listen, this Jesus you have here in your arms will be a dividing line. He'll be the fork in the road. And based on how people will respond to him, some are going to rise and some are going to fall. But make no mistake about it, Jesus is going to be the determiner of everyone's destiny. I was listening to somebody this week who's talked about every knee, every tongue will bow. Everyone will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And he went on the list. That means Herod. That means Nero. Wow, I'm like, whoa. That means Hitler. That means Bin Laden will bow his knee to King Jesus. Every knee will bow. Jesus is the divider. Jesus will decide. In fact, the word in our text, the word appointed, is the word destined. So this child is destined to determine the rise and the fall of many in Israel. Some are going to rise to the glories of salvation, the new kingdom, the righteous reign of Christ. Some will fall and go into eternity away from God. They will not experience kingdom blessing. They will not experience the joy and peace and prosperity and righteousness in the new kingdom. They're going to fall. Peter picks it up in in, uh, 2 Peter, the epistle of Peter, the second one. He says, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe... Here's the saying, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling. He's a rock of offense. They stumble, listen, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
The Apostle John simply said he came on to his own and his what? His own received him not. Do you remember how the story starts? Jesus, no place to go. Mary, I'm, excuse me, pregnant, no place to go. Doors closed, bars shut, out in the cold, go to a major, manger, no room in the inn. Jesus is rejected. Jesus, even then, we see the ministry of Christ. People will speak evil about him. There's no room for him. Why? Why all the rejection? Let me give you two reasons. One, Jesus was rejected because he was not what people were looking for. Listen, you in this room, if you're here and you reject Christ, it's because he's not what you are looking for. He is who he is. Okay, but it's not the way the world sees it. He, he is, Jesus comes to the world. The world rejects him because the ministry and the work of Jesus is not the way the world works. Look at verse 24. It says, when they went to the temple to offer sacrifices, they did what? A pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. You see that? The reason that was the case is because they were poor. In fact, in Leviticus 12, when a child was born, they were to bring a lamb and two pigeons as a sacrifice, as a presentation, as a purification. They would have to bring a lamb and two turtle doves. But it says in Leviticus that if you don't have enough money, if you're poor and you need to come to be clean, you could bring two turtle doves and two pigeons. Do you see what Luke is saying? That Mary wasn't able to offer a lamb for the Lamb of God. Just the birds, that's all she had. Jesus will say in Luke 9 that, the, that foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Luke is telling us the poverty of the Lord Jesus Christ, drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus was born in a poor family. Now I believe one of the reasons that's the case is, is because the gospel is an upside-down gospel. And that's why the world rejects it, because it's not the way the world works. Right? Pregnant girl... No husband, no money, right? Wrong side of tracks. Like, not real prosperous here. Not real, you know, what kind of child is she going to have? What kind of leadership qualities? Probably raised by a single mom. Joseph's out of the scene early in life, right? No connection, socially marginal at best. And not to sound sacrilegious, but you know what Isaiah says, 53 says about Jesus? He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected. So he's not Channing Tatum, right? He's not, he's not the hero. It's the upside-down gospel will be rejected. Because the world looks at the handsome, the world looks at the successful, the world looks at the winsome charismatics to save the day. Jesus comes along and he annihilates that. He says your status, your beauty, your looks, your image, your money, your connection, your position doesn't matter with the things that matter most. That's what he says. Jesus comes into the world with nothing and offers everything, his life. And people can't deal with that because that's not the way it works. You got to give to get. Number two. The world works differently. It's an upside-down gospel. The second reason, Jesus rejected because of truth. Look at the last verse. So that those, so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. What that means is that Jesus Christ shows us who we really are. And you know what? People don't like it. Romans 1 tells us that God, 
Deep down in our hearts, we know God, that, that there's, a, there's a sense in us where we reject him, we, 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 we reject truth, we suppress truth, we know we're sinners, but we don't want to hear it. And what we do is we muster up this energy to try to justify our existence, and we have this, this clock built within us to justify that we matter. And, and, we, and we, whether it's jobs, whether it's clothes, whether it's looks, whether it's family, that we matter. And we try to tell ourselves over and over again, if I have this, I will matter. If I have that, I'll be I'll have a personhood. I'll have value if I have this. And we have this work in our hearts, this self-justification longing in our hearts. And whatever we find for the moment, we use that to suppress the truth of Christ. We don't want to hear about our hearts. We don't want to hear about the things that are wrong with us. Right? So when someone comes and says, this is what's wrong with you, when Jesus speaks truth, we don't want nothing to do and reject it. In fact, Herod didn't want to hear. He's not the ultimate king. And he had or at least tried to have Jesus murdered. So Jesus Christ reveals the truth about our brokenness, our rebellion, and the self-justification problems, and our hearts reject him. Jesus gives us the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching of Christ, not so that we can obey it and be accepted, so that it crushes us, and we cry out for grace and mercy. We cry out for grace and mercy. Now, how, how, how do we see this great love of God? And I, I want to close with this. I want you to see this. Jesus Christ's rejection becomes our acceptance. Jesus Christ's rejection becomes our acceptance. He didn't just come to be rejected as a good example to buck up, tell yourself you matter. You know, he was rejected, he was hated, he was scorned, he was beaten, and he was crucified so that God will accept us. Look what Simeon says. He will be a sign that is opposed, and that's because his opposition is our reception. Because he was rejected, you and I can be accepted. Because that's what it means. When there's no room in the end, listen, he makes room for us that we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Listen to Isaiah 53 as we close. I just want you to put your Bibles down. Just just give me one more minute. Listen to the rejection of Christ and the acceptance of sinners through the cross and the gospel. Now listen. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry land. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But... He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, his crucifixion, his death on the cross, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way, justifying yourself, trying to get right. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Luke is telling you and I that what you think about Jesus, your faith in Jesus, your trusting in Jesus, the rise of the fall. You reject him. You don't want nothing to do with him. You want to justify yourself. You want to try to forgive yourself. You want to try to make yourself whole. You will fall. But when you come to Jesus... And you recognize 
He is the perfect one. He fulfilled the law. He is the promised Messiah. He is the deliverer. He put himself under the law, fulfilled it, and died in your place for your sin where he was crucified so that you can live. You will know the love of God. So what will be your response today? What will be your response today? How you respond has eternal implications. And I pray as we close and we sing that you respond in faith to Christ. He's the promised one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gift. The gift of salvation. The promise you made way back to Adam and then to Abraham and to the prophets you have told over and over and over again pointing to Jesus Christ. Thank you in that appointed day and that appointed time you sent forth your son born of a woman, born under the law, to fulfill that law, to die and to bear the curse that we deserve, to die in our place, to bear your wrath against sin so that we can be received. He was rejected so that we can be accepted. All we have is Jesus. Lord, we just want to come to him, fall upon him, worship him as the true God and Savior of the world.